Join us as we gather around the hedge, where we dig into technology, business, and culture with the finest minds in computer networking. Well, hello, Tom. Hello, Russ. You are back with us again with the two empty desks behind it, behind you. And I can't see you've drawn something different on the board. And it's kind of, oh, it's a, yeah. is it a, a rocket or a cast? It's a Saturn V rocket drawn by my nine-year-old. Oh, so. awesome. I couldn't figure yeah. out if it was a rocket or a lighthouse. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it kind of looks like a lighthouse. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's a little fat for a rocket, but that's okay. It's good. And that other voice you heard in there is Yvonne. Hey, hey, Yvonne hey. is back with us from the She Shed. Yeah, so, running running in here, holding everybody up because I was late today, folks. Oh well, that's okay. We yeah. are we are happy little campers. We'll be perfectly fine. Whatever. <laughs> so, how are you, Yvonne? I am good. Things are uh, busy in my world, but uh, but good. Still house building, waiting. If, if any, if you know, if you know anybody who can come lay brick. That would be amazing. Hopefully, by the time people are listening to this, we've got a bricklayer out there. But yeah, things are things are good. Great, awesome. Yeah, I'm busy too. I'm still working on this book for Pearson. I think I picked up another book project. I'm still teaching at UC because I, I guess I'm only teaching one one quarter or one class this year. But I got to finish up the slides for that. Then I have a couple of other big projects that seem to be thrown on my plate. And it's kind of odd, but yeah, so, uh, and I think my next book project is stacked up behind this one already, although it won't be tech, it'll be worldview, culture, stuff like that, but that's okay. Fun, fun, so, fun. Yeah, so lots of stuff to go work on. So today we have three, it's a roundtable show, which means I do hope that your desk is round today, Yvonne. So that we uh, can it is. I am. I. I am. I am operating from a square table or a rectangle table, should we not start a round table. This the rectangle show. Well, my desk is L shaped. We should just call it the L show. We should. We should call it the L show. Instead <laughs> <laughs> of the round table show, you've taken literalism literalism too far. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. It's interesting. So today we have three articles. As always, we'll see how much we get through them. First of all. Tom, you had this thing about OpenAI facing a complaint to the FTC. OpenAI and ChatGPT are such a huge topic right now. Everything is going on around these things. And it's taken all the oxygen out of the room as far as any other topic of conversation. I mean, I saw this thing the other day where the Ethernet Alliance did a 400 gig interoperability test between multiple vendors, and they were so happy they got four, three or four vendors to work. And nobody even heard about it because everybody's reading about chat GPT. Like, wow. <laughs> yeah. The, the interesting thing I thought here was the angle uh, being taken because there's a lot of concern about AI in general. Um, and this um, Center for AI and Digital Policy Group um, has lodged a complaint with the FTC saying that OpenAI violates Section 5 of the um, – of. Uh, I'm not clear which act it is. But uh, anyway, and, and so the basis of this is that – it um, that that section of the act prohibits unfair and deceptive business practices, and so um, they talked about how specifically called out GPT four and um, talked about how it was it fails to meet the agency standards for AI to be transparent, explainable, fair, and empirically sound. So I thought that was an interesting angle to take um, to you know. It, 
Yeah. I wonder how an AI would be transparent and understandable. I'm not entirely certain. Like the principle behind AI is that we actually don't know how it works. <laughs> well, we don't want to be bothered with the details, right? Yeah. But, exactly. I don't know exactly how you would do that. But yeah, and and I read the pause letter and I saw a couple of things about the pause letter um, in various places I follow. I follow Pirate Wires and Glenn Greenwald and all these different people out there. Um, I probably follow 200 websites for anybody who's interested. You, I, you can actually go to Feedly and I think I've made my feed, my feeds kind of public, not totally public, but mostly public, all the places I follow. And so I follow, I don't know, hundreds of places and I've seen a lot of this stuff out there about the, the pause letter. And I think the most interesting take on the pause letter was they don't necessarily want a pause so much as they want a conversation. Like right now, we're, we're so enamored of this thing, this chat GPT, and everybody's coming out with their own chat bots and everything. And we're so enamored of it. And we are so, um, I don't know, flipped out about it that we're really not having a conversation about whether it's bad or good. We're just kind of like rolling with it and just trying to find all these cool places to use it. And so I think that's a valid, I think that's actually a valid argument to make. And I, and I don't, I don't, I, I do think we're overhyping it. Personally, I think we're overhyping this mess. I mean, there's, there's, AI has a limited set of things it can do very well. And we are trying to make it into like, oh, it's AGI. No, it's not AGI, guys. This is not AGI. Well, it's just, I, I've been a lot, been a little studying up on large language models lately. And, and I mean, at their core, large language models are very complex statistical analysis of language that helps determine what words, phrases, symbols are typically grouped together. Like that, that is what it does. And I think because that's something that we've not seen before and because it sounds so much like natural language, we're, we're enamored. But I think the, the thing that, that is, is not quite seeping into our consciousness yet is that just because a certain collection of words, characters, or phrases are often found near one another, it doesn't mean when you combine them that they're accurate, right? So, yeah. so, or that they contain meaning, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. That 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 they contain meaning is is a good way to say it. And so, I think like it is just so very early. I, I think that there's a incredible amount of power, and ultimately, like that. There are some interesting things that are going to happen with um, large language models and ChatGPT and BARD and OpenAI and all those things. It's just so very early. And, and even in the field, you know, researchers will talk about hallucinations in the AI, how, how the AI says things that, that just aren't true because because of how it works, right? And it's and it is hard to understand. I think a lot of what we're going to learn in the coming years is how how do we talk to the AI? How 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 do we phrase our questions and requests in a way that help it understand what we're actually looking for? 
And 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 for example, if if you ask a a chatbot to answer a question like a mathematician, it will focus on its corpus of data that is more mathematical and is way more likely to give you a accurate mathematical response than if you just say, you know, Paul and Jane were picking apples and give it like a math word problem. And so I, I just think it's so, so new that we're still just trying to figure it out, but we also have stars in our eyes because uh, nothing has ever, quote unquote, talked to us the way that a, a large language model does. Yeah. And a lot of this to me is going to be learning the guardrails that we need to put in place. It's like, I imagine the first carpenter who found an actual hammer, right? Or built the first hammer, you know, a very effective hammer or whatever you want to say. And you almost feel like you can conquer the world because you have a new tool. Oh, look at this. I have a new tool. But then you can't apply hammers to solving every problem. And what we're trying to do right now is we're trying to, to apply a large model language system to every problem because we think that because it can string together verbs and nouns and adverbs and adjectives and stuff and make a sentence what sounds like a sentence oh it's got to be smart it's got to be smarter than i am and honestly it's probably it's definitely not smarter than you are right now and also you know You've got to learn how to apply it to the right set of problems, just like a hammer or a screwdriver or a car or anything else. And just actually, yeah, I actually have an example of what you're saying, Russ. Just um, um, day before yesterday, I was I was trying to find some stuff for a presentation I'm giving. Um, So what I wanted to know is, you know. NASA kept great records of everything they did. Obviously, it's a, it was a public program for the Apollo missions. And so I just wanted to see if I could mine through some of that without having to do a Google search and look through the NASA websites for hours. So I asked ChatGPT how many hours of testing were needed to prepare the Apollo 11 spacecraft to land on the moon. I thought, surely this number somewhere. And it came back with a very, uh, very convincing uh, answer, a very confident answer. According to NASA's historical records, the total time spent testing and preparing the Apollo 11 spacecraft for its mission to the moon was approximately 24,000 man hours. So I was like, oh, okay, that's interesting. I could have stopped right there, put it into the narrative so, I was sounds writing. Sounds light to me, by the way. And, and there was more. There, it, yeah, okay. it was actually a couple paragraphs. I'm, just, I'm okay. not going to read them all. No, no, I'm saying that even 24 hours, 24,000 oh, man the, hours doesn't sound estimate. like enough. Right, to right. Me. It took a decade and it was 24,000 hours. But like, so, so I asked, what's your source for the 24,000 man hours estimate? And it says, my source is NASA technical note D6843, blah, 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 gives a great big bureaucratic title. And that ti- that is correct. Like, you can go find that document. You can look it up and read it. But guess what? It says nothing about man hours spent testing at all. So next I asked it, can you provide a link to the, to the technical note, blah, 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 that it just put? <laughs> and the answer... I apologize for the error in my previous responses. I mistakenly referred to NASA blah, blah, blah as the source for 24,000 man hours. It doesn't contain any of that, and I don't have a specific link to the estimate. And so I'm like, okay, this is interesting. This What you're saying about learning how to use the tool, like if you don't know how to use the tool, at least in this specific instance, you could make up a number that doesn't exist, and then you know you can publish it in a blog post or whatever you were doing, and then that can get sucked into the next uh, you know um, open AI, the next Chat GPT as its body of knowledge, and um, now you've kind of assisted 
um, creating this thing that's not even actually a fact, and now someone else is going to depend on it as as fact and truth. And um, you know, you, learning how to use the machine seems to be very important. Yes, and that and that is part of the problem with ChatGPT to me is that as much as they have tried, they cannot figure out how to verify that data that it's feeding off of is not data that came from ChatGPT itself. And large language models, this is going to be a problem in the long run because it's going to eat itself. And there's no clear way to solve that I'm eating myself problem that I know of right now. Um, and, and, And part of the problem too is the filter issue as well. And we don't really think about it this way. But there's the old thing of, okay, if you give a thousand monkeys typewriters and you let them type for however long or a million monkeys, they will produce the works of Shakespeare. Well, the reality is they don't produce the works of Shakespeare. They produce enough text that you can use a Shakespeare-shaped filter to draw the Shakespeare out of the millions of lines of text that they've written. It's not the same thing. It's a different thing. And so part of it, too, is our brain going, oh, it's human language. I want to make sense of it. Out of being, look, it makes sense. That's not really, um, you have to be very careful about that stuff. Um, but we don't really think about it that, that well. Um, we're, not, we're not well equipped um, to think about these things in this way. Well, and I think, as, I mean, like social media, like the internet, like um, any, n- name a, you know, revolutionary technology that's been created ever. You know, it's, it's not going away, right? The bell doesn't untold. So part of what, what has to happen over the next decade is we figure out um, how to use it. Um, Tom, your, your example of asking for citations um, is really important. And I, and 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 I've done some reading lately that when when you interact with an AI that way, and that you ask it where it got its information, it improves the accuracy, right? And so some of that is going to be, you know, how do we shape our algorithms so that so that some of that is built in, like we understand the weaknesses of the system and then we build it. I I, I do like what do you do when you feed the data, you know, AI-generated data back into the AI? Like, at what point do, you, you know, how do we unpack the abstraction to the point where we get to, like, bits on a wire, for example? Like, I don't, I, you know, I don't, I don't think we have answers to that. But at the same time, I do think it has the potential to remove a bunch of toil from a bunch of systems, Right. Whether it's, you know, like how, how many of us started in college writing pseudocode and then we had to take that pseudocode and write it into a programming language and then spent hours and hours and hours debugging because we left out a semicolon or an ampersand somewhere. Um, and no, I never did that. I never sat down with a professor with a late assignment because I, I, <laughs> I left out an ampersand, you know, and and so it can be really helpful in those circumstances. We just have to figure out how to use it. I think it's interesting and fascinating. I think there's a lot of stuff that's going to happen in the next few years that we just can't even imagine. But but we've got to, we've got to understand it and not just be like, oh, that's awful. Because well, even if it's not great, it's not going anywhere. And I'm not I'm not saying I don't think it's not great. But I mean, regardless, like it's part of our reality. 
and we need to figure out how to best use this new tool. I'm not convinced the overall impact will be positive in the long run, but I don't know right now. It's really hard to judge, but I, I do I do have a lot of fear around us becoming reliant. It's not so much the machine itself not being better, but that we rely on it too much, that we get stars in our eyes and we rely on it too much. I mean, I know that people think writing is not an important skill. It is an important skill. And relieving people of learning to write and relieving people of learning to edit and read is in the long term not a good thing. It's a net cognitive loss, right? Like we we are going to lose skills that, and there's something that writing does to bring clarity to your thinking and help you organize your thoughts that that, that just doesn't happen any other way. And I'm and I'm I'm all with you there. It's like when you're learning to do derivatives and calculus, and you have to learn to do them the long way first, right? Because there's actually a reason, you know, <laughs> and and a structure to it. Yeah, and sometimes it's just a matter of it. when it goes wrong, when you're doing it the short way, you can go back and understand how to do it right. And I have this all the time in writing. People say, well, you know, you shouldn't. I have a rather funny instance of this. Somebody asked me why I used two particular words next to each other in a book that I wrote a while back. And they were positing all these reasons as to why I might have done that. You know, well, maybe he meant this and maybe he meant that. And I'm at the very end, I'm thinking... I just did it because I liked alliteration in that particular sentence. Like there wasn't any, <laughs> there wasn't any deeper meaning. No here. subliminal it, messages there, right? <laughs> no, it was just like the two words sound alike, and it's kind of cool sometimes to do the little thing because it keeps your readers engaged a little bit. And so, like, wow, they spent a lot of time and effort thinking through why I did something when there really wasn't any reason. <laughs> Humans are masters at assigning meaning, and when there's none there, if, if you need if you need proof of that, just you know, look at the world the last five years. <laughs> it just was insane. So yeah, so I mean, I think there are positives here, but I think we need to learn to rein it in and and you know treat it for what it's really useful, and then not to forget that we're still people and we need to actually learn skills and do stuff and stop counting on this stuff. Like people say, oh, well, I wish they could just make it where it could compile a PowerPoint set presentation into a product. Oh no, please don't. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I can't drive anywhere without my maps app anymore. Yeah, well, so that's true, I, you know. <laughs> but there's a different level of being between that and I'm just gonna make it where it just auto compiles a PowerPoint presentation into a product. No, 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 yeah. no, no, no. Let's, let's not do that. I think you're overestimating the capabilities of this thing, just so you know. Yeah, that could be. So yeah. That, that would be a tech company Darwin Award, is what that would be. Because I've seen be. some That's pretty it. awful PowerPoint in my life. <laughs> oh my goodness, that would be horrible. So the second article Tom pointed out was that how headlight leads to a CAN bus injection attack and a stolen vehicle. And this is another thing we're not thinking about that's really interesting, that it has become it has become a thing where it used to be when you built a car and you built a steering system or whatever, you would go out and build a specialized processor to do that job. And now you don't. You just buy a general purpose processor and you run a piece of software on it, which is great, but it's also bad 
Because now what happens is that general purpose processor still has all of its networking capabilities. It still has the ability to run whatever you want it to run as long as somebody can get to it and install software on it. Is that is that the kind of hack? I, I didn't fully read, but this is my impression of this is what's going to happen. Yeah, it was it was mostly talking about someone gained physical access to the CAN bus in the uh, in the car by removing a headlight and using that they were able to like you always can when you have physical access they were able to escalate privileges as it were they didn't use those phrases but that's what we'd say and they were able to unlock the doors and start the car and so like all they had to do was pull the uh, pull the headlight out and um, underneath is a completely unencrypted uh, CAN bus that um, doesn't you know, doesn't the architecture of that system doesn't take security into account at all in any way. And so they, yeah, they just were able to compromise it by having physical access. And I, I just, it's just funny. Uh, the, the reason I, I thought it was interesting is that we, as things become more intelligent, it seems like they become dumber at the same time. And we, you know, it, it makes it a lot easier for things to go wrong. And, you know, they had a little picture of this device that someone sold to make it so that they could attack the CAN bus. And it's like this awful, like resin coated thing that's sort of smashed onto some other device that is a consumer electron, a piece of consumer electronics. Um, you know, you buy it, buy it from some shady website for a few bucks and now you can break into, you know, this model of car pretty easy. And, um, yeah, I just, it just, it feels to me like looking backwards, um, maybe 15, 20 years in networking, um, to where everything was trusted and, and, you know, and just, I thought it was interesting, a good, uh, a good example of, uh, that kind of access. We used to run into it all the time at Cisco. Somebody would get physical access to a router. And if you have physical access, it's nigh unto impossible to stop them from getting console. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of game over. I, I, my first response to this article, though, was just like, man, that's clever. You know what I mean? Like, first, like props to the folks who figured this thing out, right? But I, you know, I you know, you look at cars, and you know, it used to be that you could just hotwire one, right? Like, you, you can't do that anymore. You get physical access to the car, you get inside of it. You can you can strip a couple wires and touch them together, and you're going to start the thing, right? I, so it it it's it's more sophisticated now, but I you know I, I I think it's interesting and clever. I just you know once you get physical access to a car, like all all bets are off. And at, at some point, like if somebody like if they want in, if they're really motivated, they're going to get in. And I don't mean to be fatalistic, although I probably sound that way. But uh, I, I just think this is this is incredibly clever, um, and I do think we'll, you know, as these attacks happen, the vehicles will get more hardened, and then we'll do something new, and there will be a new, um, uh, you know, a new vector. Um, and, but it is interesting, and it is a whole new class of problems that we haven't had to think of in the past. You know, and and the the real danger is is to me not so much stealing a car, but doing something to it to cause harm. You know, either lock up the braking system or alter the steering mechanisms. I mean, new cars now will uh, you know they have the lane assist that will keep you from going in one lane or another. So there's like some automated steering in there. Like, are there are there you know other than like just starting it or unlocking the doors, are there other things you can do? And I think that the command and control remotely, 
like that, if, you know, when, when we see that, like that's, that's loss of life and limb kind of territory at that point, not just a stolen property. And forensically, forensically, it becomes very problematic, right? Tracing back what happened in that situation. That's, that's an issue to me. And I don't know how you, um, yeah, I don't know how you get around, you know, get around that or whatever. We use AI That's, to parse those logs, Russ. What are you talking yeah, about? There you go. <laughs> we just send all the logs into the AI and let it figure it out. <laughs> and then you ask it for its reference. Yeah. It's Friday <laughs> afternoon. I'm feeling a little punchy. It's, I'm sorry. But yeah, you know, it's, no, it's interesting because, too, because um, way back in the initial days of when I was working on networking, people started doing DOS attacks. They weren't DDoS, they were DOS. There were certain styles of attacks that people did. And then we kind of defeated those in different ways. And then, you know, they moved on to another kind of attack and another. But as we've closed the holes on the newer attacks, we seem to be leaving the older attacks open hold again. And so I was reading an article the other day that talked about how, well, yeah, we know these old-fashioned DDoS attacks are back. And it's interesting because here again, we have the same problem here with the car. And somebody's going to go close the CAN bus to make that fixed. But then eventually it's going to get back to the point where nobody's ever going to think about just popping the hood and cutting the brake cables or the brake lines, right? We're all going to be so focused on the CAN bus that we don't realize you could just slice this tire on the side and cause the same amount of damage. And it's almost just as untraceable in many ways. So, yeah, I mean, it's security has always been a bit of whack-a-mole, but this is... It is worrisome that this that I keep seeing this stuff about cars with all these electronics. Makes me want to go buy an old car. I've been talking about it for a long time. Just go buy an old car with no electronics. Just just because. Like I'm just just, tired what, of it. just just be sure you lock it up so they can't hotwire it, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so now the third one, Yvonne pointed out, which is dot data center costs are set to rise and rise. Which yeah, I mean, again, I don't know what to do with this stuff. Like, to some degree, you can go to cloud to gather up your, to because they can buy things cheaper than you can because they're buying a quantity and you're not. But to some degree, that doesn't work either for cost. So, and part of this is not just, by the way, network equipment. It's not just supply chain and network equipment. Part of this is just going to be flat out um, power. And most of it, most of it's not network. Network's like eight or ten percent of a data center's cost, right? Yeah, network's a all, drop in the bucket. Yeah, it's all power and it's all bandwidth, right? Yeah, even in you in the article you pointed out, Yvonne, there's a there's a chart down here. Go ahead, sorry. No, no, I'm sorry. I, I thought you were you were, but but the article is really coming at it from the approach of so let so you want to build a new data center, right? And uh, and 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 it it calls out you know the the changes in inflation and the challenges with supply chain and things like that. But you know, as somebody who's been more connected with construction lately, also just your raw materials, concrete, steel, all of those things. And and I think you know. Here's, it's getting more expensive for everybody. I think what it does is it it raises the barrier of entry for most people to run their own data center, right? But but it also means like the the, the public clouds, like their their cost is going to be impacted too. And so I think like ultimately, like we're gonna we're gonna see a net rise in what it costs to run, you know, complex technical environments and 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 
it we may see some interesting optimizations even on the software side to try and help mitigate some of it. I think to, to me, that's one of the interesting questions is as data centers get more expensive, how do we engineer systems to be more, more efficient um, and not, not use as much compute, not use as much space, not use as much power because historically orgs like built their data centers and then they just ran everything all the time because that was easiest but well, it extends, I think, extends life of the equipment. It does all sorts of stuff, right? It's, it's it'll yeah. be interesting to see if this trend is significant enough to cause some change in operating behavior, right? That's 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 one of the the questions that I had as I read it. Is 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 it significant enough to cause a change in behavior? And what does this do to public cloud? What does this do to you know mid-sized organizations who who need some infrastructure, but um, you know, don't have millions of dollars lying around to, to build a facility. Thing, another thing that's interesting about this uh, that I wonder is that it used to be everybody built, built a bunch of small data centers. And because of cost and cooling and everything else, they went to building one big data center or two big data centers. Now I wonder if you're better off building a bunch of small data centers again to spread your energy cost over a bunch of different markets because different markets have different energy cost profiles at different times of the year. And like, you know, things like this. Um, I wonder if, or if it's even worth to build a data center in Nook, Greenland, you know, or something like that because the, the heating costs are so much less or whatever, cooling costs are so much less. So I don't know. I mean, is this going to push us to start rethinking the way we do our design work? into a different mold. I, I don't know, but it seems like potentially. Well, it's, it's, it's a really interesting set of trade-offs, to use uh, Russ's term, when you think about <laughs> it, because, you know, also, like, you know, latency is still a problem. The way apps are built and, and data locality is a challenge. And, you know, you, you've still got your internet exchanges where, you know, most connection points are co-located. And so, you know, as organizations look at where to geographically locate their data centers, you got to take that into account too, right? So if, if, if you need to be on the West Coast or if you need to be in mid-America or you need to be in Europe and, and you need to be within a certain, you know, millisecond range of um, some interconnect points, like that also is going to really dictate what your options are. And um, I would I would love us to start building systems that that dealt better with network latency, that didn't you know require s such high speed interconnects that um, you know that really gave us more flexibility from especially a networking architecture standpoint because I've seen so many really complex designs that are driven by latency application issues that weren't understood when the app was built, right? Yeah, it may work fine when you're testing this on a LAN. You move those things 50 milliseconds apart and it's not gonna be fine, right? And well, I see that over and over and over. Yeah, but a lot of that's human impatience too, isn't it? It's not just the, just not just the applications, it's that if I stack four 250 millisecond delays, I have a one second delay and the human's gonna hang up and, you know, I wonder how much of this is driven by humans as much as it is anything else. 
I think one of the things that I think is really interesting is just looking at the graph here that shows power. So power is far and away the most the, the most costly part of this, according to the data here. And it shows 58% of the cost is for power for enterprise data center operators, but 64% is the of the cost is power for co-location providers. And that's really interesting to me because that 64% gets spread over every customer that they have, where the enterprise operator only has one customer to spread that cost across themselves. And, um, you know, rest to your earlier point where you're talking about, well, you know, is this time to distribute the applications more, you know, chop it up into smaller pieces. And that also solves the data locality question at the same time. But I think what that does with power is it dilutes the, um, you could say economies of scale of the power problem because th these problems will not be solved until there's a significant economic incentive to do so. And if you had 64% of your multi-million dollar bill, if you could say I could drop that by 10 or 15% by doing something different with the application and it's going to save a lot of money on power, then that's going to be, that's an incentive that the market will work with. And we, we, we might maybe would start to see some power innovation, but if you chop up the load and spread it out all over the place, you're no longer going to be looking at 64%. You're going to be looking at 10% or 9% or 8%, and then the incentive will evaporate as well. Well, I think the other the other challenge we have is a lot of organizations don't have a holistic view of what it actually costs to run their data center. The way their organizations are siloed between, you know, like physical plant may re be responsible for the power in the data center, and then you have an IT group that's responsible for the software and the patching and all that, and then you've got purchasing that's responsible for acquiring the the gear, and none of those orgs combine that data to give you a meaningful understanding of what it actually costs to run a data center, and and that just lack of clarity and visibility across all those different silos in your org make it really hard, and also often don't create a much of an incentive to solve the problem. You know, if, if it's physical plants budget, like, I don't care, run those servers, right? Um, not that, I'm not saying that that's what people ought to do. I'm just saying like, that's typically how organizations work, right? And it creates additional challenges when it comes to, and I think also, this is why some of your cloud providers are better at this because it is their business to know and understand those things. Whereas a lot of your other organizations, like they're not in the business of running data centers, they're in the business of doing what they do. And so they they don't have the same lens that they look at their data centers through. Um, so I think there's, there's an argument to be made to look at that more holistically as opposed to in a line item by line item across a bunch of different silos in your organization. Yeah. Once again, we aren't looking at the system. We're looking at the bits and pieces, and we do that an awful lot. Tyranny of small decisions. I talked about it with somebody else this week. Yeah. Make a bunch yeah. of independent decisions that are on their face logical, but then you combine them together and the system doesn't work, right? It's a thing. Happens all the time, particularly in complex systems like what we deal with. Yeah. Yeah, very much. So that is all I have. Anything from you, Tom? Nope. That's it for me. That's it? Okay. Anything from you, Yvonne? No, no. I just always have an opinion, so I'm always happy to talk about stuff. You can take it or leave it. I don't know how valid it is, but I always have an opinion. Oh, my goodness. Yvonne's been replaced by ChatGPT. Oh. Does, does ChatGPT have a like a hillbilly accent? I don't know about that. Come on. I don't know. I bet you could tell it. Please have a hillbilly accent, and it might actually do it. 
Who knows? It needs to say bless your heart and y'all a lot. <laughs> I don't. My experience with Chad GPT lately, if you ask it for that, it's probably going to give you an Australian accent or something. <laughs> <laughs> Could be. Which, by the way, Yvonne, I'm glad you said hillbilly and not the other alternative. I don't know. I, well, well, I really, I have a hard time keeping up, and I was really hoping when I said it that that is not an offensive term. No, like, I don't mm, think so. I don't, I don't think, think it is. No. Since I'm no, I consider myself a hillbilly, and I'm saying I think it's okay. No, it's okay. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, when I was in the Air Force, when I was in the U.S. Air Force, people used to, I, I had this one man, not, not people, but this one manager of mine said that, he said two things to me I considered pretty bad. One was he said, everybody I know who's from Georgia is stupid. And I thought, well, there, that's that's a good thing to start with. And then he said, you know, I don't I don't like to deal with rednecks. And I'm like, you know, I really think you ought to go call my grandfather a redneck and let's see how long this would last. <laughs> well, you know, what do you say? My, my family is not rednecks. Yeah. <laughs> they are hillbillies. <laughs> and there is definitely a difference. <laughs> And on the next roundtable, we'll clearly define those terms and go into detail. <laughs> Not, maybe that's our next April Fool's episode or something. I don't know. Uh, it's just one of those things. All right. Okay. So, Tom, where can people get in touch with you if they want to? Uh, LinkedIn and Twitter. And that's it. All right. That's it. And Yvonne? Yeah, about the same. So you can find me on Twitter at Sharp Network and I reach out on LinkedIn. I'm all around. right, awesome. And I'm Russ White. You can find me here at The Hedge all the time. You can find Yvonne and Tom at The Hedge all the time, too. They just don't say it, but that's okay. They're, they're, they're <laughs> usually on. Well, Tom yeah. is. We're working on Yvonne again. <laughs> and you can always find me at Tech. I do write on packet pushers and I do stuff on Pearson and I'm thinking about doing something else now. I've got some other ideas in my head with Ethan that we're twirling around and thinking about. So we'll see what comes up with those. But if you have other topics for the show or you're interested in something we've said here, um, other than rednecks versus hillbillies, we really don't want to <laughs> do the no, definition. We'll, show. we'll leave the cultural commentary to somebody else. Somebody yeah. who makes a lot more money to be a talking head on social media. <laughs> Yeah. So, um, yeah, if you have any ideas or somebody you'd like to see come on, please let us know. We appreciate your time and attention. We know that your attention is probably the most important thing you have right now. So just, you know, listening to us Babylon about chat GPT and stuff is cool. And uh, thanks for listening to this episode of The Hedge, and we'll catch you next time. Subscribe to The Hedge on your favorite podcast service or follow along at rule11.tech.